Hey, Sean Gaby here. Welcome to the Supernatural Leadership Podcast. Wherever you are listening from, we are glad that you have joined us. Please follow us on Instagram at Sean Gaby and at Supernatural Leadership Podcast and or visit kingdomculture.ca or seangaby.com for more engaging content around topics we will be discussing. As well, you would love it if you would leave a review on this podcast as it helps boost our ability to get this content out to more people. If you are new with us today, just want to inform you that we will be releasing a new episode on the first Wednesday of every month and every so often a bonus episode. So make sure to hit the subscribe button so you can keep up to date with every episode. There are so many great leadership podcasts out there and truthfully, I love so many of them. So why supernatural leadership? Really, it's the difference between presence and principle as we discuss in episode one. The very first episode of this podcast really sets the tone for the why and purpose for this podcast. I would encourage you to have a listen if you haven't already. Simply put, we believe everyone has a leader within them at some capacity. Whether you're a CEO, non-for-profit director, media mogul, church leader, pastor, small business owner, manager of teams, a dad, a mom, and well, the list could go on. If everyone has a leader within them, why not make that leader a little more supernatural? That's the heart and goal behind this podcast, helping you connect your natural with God's super, making your leadership a little more supernatural. At the end of every episode, there will be practical activations and exercises to help us grow and mature in the various areas discussed. Thank you for listening to the Supernatural Leadership Podcast. Hey everyone, I want to welcome you again to our Supernatural Leadership Podcast. So thankful that you've dropped by. If this is your first time, welcome to the Supernatural Leadership family. If you've been with us for some time now, you know it's actually been just over a year since we've been bringing you monthly content. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for reviewing it, rating this podcast, subscribing to it, downloading it, and sharing it. It means the world to me. And so thank you, thank you. And our hope, as I said, is that your leadership would become a little more supernatural. Today, we have something very special, and it's an interview that I did back in July with Dr. Glenn Hill, based out of Nashville. Dr. Glenn Hill, based out of Nashville. He has been working with marriages for over 30 years. He has a master's in marriage and family therapy, a PhD in clinical sexology, which is just wow on so many levels. He's an author, songwriter. He's been married for 38 years, four children and 10 grandchildren. And uh, he's just packing an incredible, incredible bio. And uh, I was so encouraged by this conversation. And I want to share it with you. I want to share it with you leaders out there. I believe it's an absolutely important conversation for us to have when it comes to leadership. And it's all about connection. We know that our leadership is only as strong as our connection with people, whether it's our marriages, whether it's with friends, coworkers, uh, employee relationships, or just any area of leadership where you're dealing with people. Because Really, every area of leadership is with people. If there's no people, there's no leadership. And so I want to bring this conversation to you. I know it will be a powerful conversation. And yes, this doctor 
is uh, Michelle and I's marriage counselor that we have been seeing for over a year and a half now. And so he's very special to us and we're so thankful for him. And, you know, I always say this, don't just bring your car in to the dealer or to the mechanic when it's broken down. Bring it in for regular checkups, regular maintenance, so that breakdown doesn't have to happen. And uh, Michelle and I, over the course of the last several years, decided that we were going to do that. We were going to make sure that we continually invest in our relationship, in our leadership, in our parenting, and uh, before we get to a place where we're desperate. And so we've been investing in this way for some time now with Dr. Glenn Hill. His practice is absolutely incredible. So I'm excited to introduce to you a conversation that I had. Enjoy it. Take some notes. I know it will be a game changer for your leadership. Enjoy. Today we're talking about the topic revive the connection revive the connection for our revive 2020 series and uh, our sub our subject or subtitle is a chat with the counselor my counselor so this is honestly a very different type of conversation it's almost vulnerable for me because you man this doctor i mean he's gotten into michelle and i's world deeply and so but we were so thankful for you. I can't say that enough. And I'm so amazed to have you on this. I want to open it up with this. I want to open it up with a scripture out of Proverbs 18, 13, out of the message translation. And this verse, I believe, really in some way could be like a foundation stone for a lot of your practice because of what you do and what you teach. And it's out of Proverbs 18, verse 13, saying this, answering before listening is both stupid and rude. And that is out of the message translation. And I remember, I remember way back uh, in the beginning of some of the times we've met and we first started to have our sessions together, you made this statement that has echoed through the last year and a half of Michelle and I's relationship. And you said these words, you said, Sean, you can win the court case, but then lose the relationship. In other words, you can have a conversation And you can bring all your evidence and argue your point and not really hear the person, not really listen to the person's heart. You can show your evidence and win and you can be justifiably right, but then you can lose the relationship. That has powerfully impacted our relationship. And I'd love for you to now just dive into a little bit of your story. You have, I know you have this, this, um, your practice is based around what you call the connection codes and what you call the emotion wheel. And I'd love for you to dive into that. And But first, dive into a little bit of your journey, your story. How did you get to where you are today? And, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, Phyllis and I, as you mentioned, have been married for 38 years. Our first 10 years were horrific. Uh, there was pain and disconnect every day. Uh, we met as teenagers. We met at a Bible camp in the summer. Uh, I hit her in the head with the softball, and she's uh, never recovered, uh, thankfully. But we uh, were together for about four years, married, uh, start, thought everything was going to be fairy tale. thought it was going to be great. We didn't have great uh, examples in our lives of what marriage was. Uh, when I'm married, I could say I've never really seen a marriage that I thought, I want some of that. I want to duplicate that. But we thought, oh, this is no big deal. You know, we love each other. We're just having fun. So it'll be great. And uh, it didn't work out that way at all. So the first 10 years were uh, very painful, just continual. We were just clueless. 
Uh, we liked each other. We wanted to be together, but we couldn't stand uh, being together. So it was just this incredibly intense uh, struggle uh, every day. And again, literally day after day after week after week. Uh, we often say that we didn't really disconnect because we were always disconnected. So well, we didn't have anything to disconnect from. We just stayed disconnected all the time. So much pain. That's a big part of our passion today is we know the pain of struggling marriage. Uh, but now we know the thrill of connected marriage and are just blown away by this. About the same time that we started getting a little bit of help, getting a little traction in our relationship, somewhere around 10, 11, 12 years in, all of our friends were divorcing. And uh, we were intrigued by that because we were thinking, what happened with them that didn't happen with us? You know, you can only experience so much pain. So we're like, we were maxed out and we actually didn't legally divorce. So what happened with them? So we began asking questions initially, just kind of out of morbid curiosity. You know, what happened that you, because we knew, you know, these were high school sweethearts. We knew that, you know, that so-and-so was going to marry so-and-so and and, uh, have 2.3 kids and live happily ever after. We didn't know that they were going to marry, have 2.3 kids and then divorce. So we would ask the question, what happened for the two of you? But the trick was we asked the follow-up question because people would say the standard, we grew apart, you know, we fell out of love. But then we go, wait, what, what does that mean? You fell out of love, like on a Tuesday at three o'clock in the afternoon? Like at some point you <laughs> fell in love. What does that mean? You Tuesday at three, you fell out of love and you, know, you grew apart. Well, at some point you grew together. That's why you went on the third date is because you're growing together. So Saturday afternoon at, you know, 430, you started growing apart. So initially, again, just kind of out of morbid curiosity, we were curious what happened with these uh, individuals. And then it became something of a quest and then it evolved into a mission. And now it's our passion. Because we figured out, fast forwarding a bit, we figured out a few years ago what causes people to disconnect. And this became my field, uh, a lot of research, a lot of science behind it, as far as what happens with humans that cause them to disconnect in relationship. Once we figured that out, and pretty much all the brilliant things that have uh, occurred in our um, the quest with the connection codes are, are Phyllis's. Uh, benchmark. She's the, I'm supposed to be the smart one, the educated one, but she's the one that always comes up with the pertinent things like, oh, so a number of years ago, she said, wait, if we now know what causes people to disconnect, turn it upside down. That's what causes people to connect. And that's what we now call the connection codes. The connection codes are the blueprint of how humans connect in relationship. But they're also a set of tools as far as how to make that happen. Most people don't suffer from bad intentions. Some do, but most don't. Most of them have the greatest of intentions. They just don't have the tools. They don't know how to do what they're so desperately craving to do. That was certainly true of Phyllis and myself. Uh, We really, really wanted to be connected and were clueless. Again, not for an afternoon, not for a day, a week, a month, a year, for years, for over a decade. And there's so much pain in that. And that's a lot of what drives us today is because we know the pain. uh, And having that experience of the pain really helps us to cue in to people Uh, who are living uh, with the pain. It's my personal theory. We have some data on this, but not a whole lot. I think probably in excess of 90% of marriages uh, are what we would call unsuccessful. What do we mean by that? Well, we do a survey. It's a 10-question survey. Eight of the questions are kind of throwaways. But the two questions that we, Matt, that we hone in on are, number one, are you living what you hoped for on your wedding day? And virtually every couple says, no, not really. Well, that doesn't sound good to me. This is what they dreamed of. This is what they hoped for, and it's not happening. And then the other question is, is this what you hope your children get to experience? And again, virtually every couple goes, no, not at all. I hope they 
uh, have much, much better than this. I don't want them to have to endure this kind of, uh, not necessarily even active pain, but just the mundaneness, the, the blahness uh, of relationships. So if people answer yes to both those, or answer no to both those questions, you know, they're not living what they dreamed of on their wedding day. They're not uh, living what they hope their children get to experience. I'm thinking that's not a good thing. That's not really where we want uh, to be. And it has been our uh, experience that in excess of 90% of couples uh, are in that uh, camp. So my experience has been, and I've sat with people all over the world, uh, I have a fair amount of exposure, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, marriage is pretty much gone uh, worldwide. Uh, now, I'm a faith-based person. I believe that God put marriage in the heart of us, and I think that's why every culture in history has practiced and uh, celebrated marriage. Uh, so it's within us. Again, I'm faith-based, but even if it's evolutionary, this is how humans function, but we're not doing it well. Uh, I know of very, very few cultures and uh, very few individuals where I would go, wow, they are just nailing it. They just kind of smoothly... Uh, automatically went into uh, success. There are a few, but not uh, very many, and Phyllis and I certainly were uh, not one uh, of those. What we get, and I'm fast-forwarding a bit, but what we get to live now blows our mind. Uh, we did not know that marriage could be uh, like this. Uh, Phyllis and I, and we haven't dealt with the definitions yet, but Phyllis and I had four disconnects in 2018. We had three disconnects in 2019. We were stunned with that. We had no idea this was even a thing. Our culture certainly does not say that. Our, our culture says marriage is hard work. You know, you have your ups and downs. It ebbs and flows. In 2020, Phyllis and I have had zero disconnects uh, this year. That blows my mind. We literally wake up every day connected. We spend the day connected, and we end the day connected. I didn't know that existed. I had never heard uh, of that. Uh, we've had three tense moments total the whole year, three tense moments that lasted a number of minutes. Now you say um, that, you say that, and people watching are like, okay, what the heck is he talking about? Like, what's a disconnect? I mean, people can barely agree on the paint color to paint their wall. So like, you know, I know we're going to go into that in a second, but I, there's two things I want to just mention at the forefront of this is that Phyllis, which is Dr. Glenn's wife, and Dr. Glenn himself have an incredibly admirable relationship. And the one thing I like about what you do and what you've brought us into is that, yes, you give us the tools, but you also bring us into your personal world a little bit. And then, you know, just now meeting Phyllis, your wife, and seeing how you guys interact. Like, I tell us to people, like, there's, there's leaders that I look up to. There's gifted communicators I look up to, preachers, whatever, but you guys, I feel like out of all the couples that I've ever interacted with, look up to you guys the most. Like, I want what you guys have. And I think all of us need a model. Here's the thing. That's what good leadership is. Everyone needs a model to follow. Everyone needs a model to look up to. Everyone needs a new standard. I know Jesus obviously is the, the golden standard. But then he uses his ambassadors, his representatives, to be also a standard of what things could be like. And you guys, you guys are inspiring. I know you're in your late 50s, correct me if I'm wrong, but the stories that you say, and we're going to get into this a little bit, but, and I want you to go back. And you said that the, the first 10 years of your marriage wasn't working. And I want to know what was the turning, like what was the, I'm in the pit of despair moment that 
pulled you up, that shifted the relationship. So you talk about the first 10 years of your marriage disconnected, not connecting emotionally. What was the shift for you? And then let's continue to go and then develop this idea of what is a disconnect and what is connecting and the connection codes and the wheel of emotion. Let's go there for a little bit. Yeah. Well, we're fast forwarding a whole bunch here because we haven't laid uh, the groundwork for this, but the big shift for us was in the late eighties. So at that point we're, you know, seven, eight years into our, our marriage and a friend, a pastor um, who loved us beautifully, him and his wife uh, just treated us with such gentleness, such kindness, because we were very faith-based then as well. And, but what I usually heard was this intense coming at you, repent, uh, change, be like Jesus right now, which I was not against. It's not that I was arguing against it. I didn't know what, how to do that. I didn't know what to do. And uh, this guy, uh, again, we're fast forwarding a whole bunch of you here, but um, he just helped me see some things about myself. Up until that point uh, in my marriage, uh, I was exasperated that Phyllis would not do things the correct way, the right way, which coincidentally happened to be my way, uh, was God's way of doing things. And so we had endless conflicts uh, about her not, and I'm talking about things like folding the towels correctly, correctly, uh, you know, putting the dishes away the way they're supposed to be, the way God wants them. And that was very clear in my mind. Well, I now know, again, fast forwarding a bunch of years, I now know I was dealing with a very high level of psychological disorder. Uh, I scored an 87 on an obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, I'm sorry, an 84 in 1987. And that was earth shattering uh, for me and overwhelming to realize that so many of these conflicts came because of funky stuff with me. I didn't know that. Uh, Phyllis didn't know it, but she kind of knew something was funky. Uh, and that poor girl was just constantly trying to catch up, trying to do things God's way, the right way, Glenn's way. And it was overwhelming for her, especially once we started having children. Uh, she's thinking, I got the laundry done with these little kids running around, you know, clawing at me. That's awesome. And then her husband would come home and go, no, 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 it wasn't done right. And I literally would redo the laundry. I would redo so many things. And that poor girl's going, what is happening here? And she didn't have a clue that, oh, okay, there's some disorders of the psyche. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, just that it's just a disorder of the psyche. One of my dreams, hopefully in my lifetime, if I live long enough, is to change this in our culture, to depathologize psychological disorders. So psychological disorder is simply a disorder of the psyche. Something happens and you get knocked off in your thinking. Well, that was happening with me all the time, but I didn't know that. So I was constantly, as you mentioned earlier, trying to win the court case. I was trying to prove to her that I was right, she was wrong. And so I would try to present to a uh, you know, metaphorical judge and jury my evidence that I was correct and she's wrong, therefore I win. Well, I might've won the court case. I talk faster than Phyllis. Uh, so I could win the court case, but I would lose the relationship over and over and over and over again. So that began evolving for us once we realized that, oh, okay, there's some funky stuff that happens with Glenn uh, here. And again, to depathologize this, that Glenn's not trying to experience this. Glenn's not trying for this to happen in his psyche, in his mind. He just does. And now we're actually able to be entertained uh, by it. It's my theory, again, fast forwarding a bit, it's my theory that all of us deal with psychological disorders at some level, at some point uh, in our life. And I don't really care. This is just what happens in your psyche. So, oh, okay, I want to hear about that. So that, that's what knocks you off course. That's, which again, usually messes up the relationship. Uh, not always, but, but frequently it does. Now, Phyllis and I are just able to actually connect through 
our psychological disorders are actually able to look at each other and go, oh, wow, so you experience that a lot differently than I do. I'll be darned. I'm not trying to say you're right and I'm wrong. I'm not trying to say that I'm right and you're wrong. This is just what happens uh, for you. So as this began evolving for us and we started getting that, okay, this is just our experience. Uh, if you're terrified of spiders, I can lecture you all day long uh, on the safety of spiders. There are very few uh, threatening spiders, and there are in a minuscule number of uh, times that people are damaged by spiders. That doesn't help you any. You have an intense fear of spiders. So I can tell you you're an idiot. I can tell you you're wrong. I can tell you to stop it. That doesn't change anything. All it changes is the fact that you're not going to turn to me uh, in your moment of vulnerability. You're not going to turn to me with your authenticity. And so we're just going to disconnect. So talking about disconnects, a disconnect we kind of define, and it's not an exact definition, but a working definition of when you don't want to be together, when you want to be out of the same room. It's been years since uh, Phyllis and I have uh, done a physical disconnect where she actually walked away from me, which was stunning to me. Uh, that happened one time in uh, 2018. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> she just, what? We were in an airport. She literally walked away from me and I didn't know what to do. And I was in a Starbucks line, which you don't ever dare get out of. So I didn't know what to do. So <laughs> I stayed in the Starbucks line. I'm prioritized. I did take her a latte, so uh, it's okay. <laughs> but anyway, uh, a disconnect where you just don't want to be with that person. You don't want to be uh, around them. I'm not talking about just you're struggling through a, a discussion, even a disagreement. Uh, that's simple to do. Now, when we get good at doing the connection codes, those even those moments become 20 seconds, become 30 seconds. Phyllis and I rarely ever uh, have tense moments that are more than about a minute. Uh, which again blows my mind. I didn't know that was a thing. And it's, I really have to emphasize that this is not me preaching from a pedestal. Uh, I can match anybody out there stupid for stupid. I can match anybody out there <laughs> failure to failure. Yeah. So I do not want it to be, I don't want people at all to think, oh, they got lucky. They won the lottery. You know, they were born with silver spoons in their mouth. No, uh, we did stupid as well as anybody. Uh, and it was just with some help along the way. And again, I'm convinced a lot of God's grace and wisdom that we were able to keep wrestling. We we're very diligent. It does take diligence. Uh, but because of that, we slowly got some traction. And uh, the last 10 to 15 years have blown our minds uh, as far as what marriage can be. And let me just say that uh, because I know there are people out there listening that are, that are like, well, you know, marriage is just hard work. That's one of our cultural truths, uh, things that we believe as a culture that are not eternal truths. But uh, I am unable to read the story in Genesis of the creation, whether you accept it as literal or um, allegorical, I cannot read that story and go, God's idea was to make marriage hard work. God's idea was to put these two individuals together who are just going to be brutal with each other uh, continuously, and hopefully they'll learn to coexist a little bit. But what, what an awful uh, mentality that says that's the goal. And again, nobody starts out that way. No one would go on the second date with that arrangement. No one would go on the third date thinking, well, this is hard work and it's pretty brutal, but, you know, I'm committed to it. But that's one of right. our cultural truths that marriage is all about commitment. I'm not committed to Phyllis. I'm addicted to her. I'm enthralled with wow. her. I'm mesmerized by her. I'm not committed to her. Now, is there commitment way down there at the baseline, uh, foundation? Yeah, I guess so. And if Phyllis was in a car wreck and ended up in a coma for three years, I'm committed. I'm not getting anything back from her but I'm seeing her every day. I'm with her every day, but I don't want to set my relationship up that way. 
that's just in a, a disastrous scenario where it's just based on commitment. I'm not functioning based on commitment. We are literally just so excited every day. We wake up together in the morning like, oh, my gosh, this, this is going to be a bodacious day. And we haven't even gotten out of bed uh, yet. Wow. And it's really just thrilling to me to get to uh, experience that. And I believe that we can change the world. I believe that we can spread this. Uh, now, the connection codes apply to all relationships, not just marriage. It grew out of marriage uh, counseling, grew out of marriage therapy. Uh, but it applies to all relationships, children, coworkers, neighbors, it uh, doesn't matter who it is, because it's just a human experience. It's based on the human uh, condition. Yeah, and you know, I if, if can I can just say world. this, before we dive into there, as I want to go there, I want to talk about the wheel, the emotional wheel, and what that means in context to learning how to connect better, not like you said, not only with your marriage, but your friends, as a leader, the those that you're leading, your the team members around your life, you know, just interactions in general. This is actually really improved for all those listening. What we're about to dive into has improved my leadership. It's improved my ability to interact with just people in general, not just marriage. But obviously, we began to cultivate it from that place, like Dr. Glenn said, out of marriage. But uh, one of the things I, I just want to say, and that you've said this over and over again, and I know it's I know it's fact, I know it's science, I know it's medical, that the major, like many, at least, I don't know what the wor proper wording is, and you can elaborate on this, many of sickness and disease today can be traced back to some sort of unprocessed emotion. And one of the things I've learned from you greatly is that even if my emotion is like a two on a scale of 10, the, the, the benefit of processing that emotion is that I am preventing it potentially from going from a two to a 10. And then if I do, if I create a culture of this every day, I want to call it like a culture of the connection codes because culture is something you do over and over and over and over again until it cultivates something and produces a harvest in your life. So I, I believe that, that it's one of the, one of the ways it's helped me is just learning to like consistently get these emotions out and obviously in the right context, I'm not going out there and to the whole world on social media, everywhere I go and just vomiting my emotion. No, there's like people in my life uh, that I'm learning to do this with better and better so that I'm a healthier version of myself. So let's go there for a little bit. What is the connection codes? What is the the wheel of emotion? And we're going to put that up on the screen for those that are watching. And just let's just dive into this. Well, this developed again over a period of time. Uh, I am a very emotional person. Now, just so you know, everybody's a very emotional person because this is just based on the human condition. And you'll hear people say, oh, I'm not very emotional. That's not true. That just means they don't process emotion. They don't convey emotion very well because every human on the planet is oxygen oriented. If you ever meet someone and they say, oh, I don't do oxygen anymore. I've just kind of transcended. I'm not into oxygen. That's not true. They may believe that. That's what we would call a psychological disorder. They are oxygen oriented. I guarantee you. If they say, oh, I don't do blood anymore. I don't have any blood in my body. Not true. We, there are certain things that we know are true of all uh, humans. Now, it's important that we stress that psychology is a soft science. We have to be very careful uh, talking about humans and human behavior uh, because there's so much variation. Uh, we always say if you put two particles of hydrogen with one particle of oxygen, you get H2O and you get it every time. And that's what we call water. And you don't ever get cotton candy or a new car or anything like that. You just get H2O. Well, that's because all the hydrogen particles are the same and also for oxygen. That's not true with humans. So 
just when you say that uh, you know so many debilitating illnesses are caused by unprocessed emotion, it's so difficult to prove anything uh, with humans because there's so many variables. Uh, we always say that humans are bad lab rats; they keep exiting the laboratory. So if we could keep these humans in a laboratory for 20 years, we could figure this stuff out. Well, they keep wanting to go home and go to the mall and stuff. So uh, it's very difficult. <laughs> love it. Love that analogy. Laboratory. Uh, so again, we have to be very careful because the, the trick is that anytime we say these things, somebody goes, oh, that wasn't true for this situation. Okay, fine. I'm not going to argue with you about that. But we do know this now. We have such a mounting body of evidence. We have longitudinal studies of over 30 years. Uh, that are coming up with these results. Again, psychology is a soft science. We can't prove or disprove, but we have so much evidence. Uh, I was a, a kid in the 70s whenever the, uh, it became said a lot that um, heart attacks are caused by stress. And I was like, well, that's the dumbest thing ever. That's not true. Listen to the phrase, heart attack. It's caused by the heart. And it was many years, and I was 10 years old, so they didn't really listen to me. Uh, but it was many years before I was like, oh, okay, so the stress does this, which then does this, which then does this, which then results uh, in a heart attack. So again, difficult to prove or disprove, but yeah, uh, heart attacks can be caused by stress. Uh, and there's so many things that happen in the body when emotions are stored up, when they're dammed up, when they're not uh, processed. So we now know uh, that uh, all humans experience uh, emotion. That's true for every human on the planet. It is a fundamental human right. You have the right to experience what you experience. You have the right to have the emotion that you have. And as a culture, uh, we have said for many years that you do not. Uh, we say, Sean, don't experience his emotion, and whatever you do, don't share it. Uh, and we're, I think we're worse on men in this culture than women. Uh, but across the board, we just kind of tell people to stop being emotional, to step over the emotion, to overcome the emotion. And really all we're doing is telling them to be unhealthy. We want you to suppress this emotion. So number one, emotion is a fundamental human right. Every person on the planet experiences it, and every person on the planet has the right to experience it. You also have the right to convey it. Again, we want to go back to the human condition. When babies are born, they convey emotion. That's what they're supposed to do. We are born into teamship. We are born into tandemship. And we do not say to these babies, just shut up. We do not want to hear about what's happening with you anymore. I hope that you don't say that. And whenever you were two months old, six months old, 10 months old, a year old, you were really good at this. You just can, this is pre-language. You just conveyed what was happening with you and others around you responded to you and met your needs. Good. That's what's supposed to happen. This is why we call it coding because you're coded this way. That six month old baby is not thinking through Hmm, what should I do here? I'm feeling a lot of hunger. Oh, I know. I'll let somebody know that I'm feeling hunger. Nope. They're coded that way. It's not cognition. It's coding. They automatically do that when they feel fear, when they feel loneliness, whatever. They automatically convey. I just want to get you to do the same thing. Now, we're adults. I know we have responsibilities. I have a son-in-law who's a firefighter. Uh, if he feels fear about that house on fire, well, dude, I get it. I feel fear too. But it's your responsibility to head to the fire when everybody else is headed out. So yes, we have responsibilities, but in general, in relationships, I want you to be able to convey what's happening with you. So the core emotion wheel, which is a big, big tool, what we call a puzzle piece uh, with the connection codes developed as we started getting that. So all humans experience emotion. We also figured this out is humans connect through emotions. Humans do not connect through logistics. 
Logistics are the facts, the figures, the information, the content. Logistics get us in the same room together, which is fine. Logistics are not wrong, uh, but they don't connect us. So you can end up in the same room with a whole bunch of pick a thing, uh, you know, mushroom lovers. So you went to the mushroom lovers convention, uh, but then you experience someone who's not kind to you. And you go, oh, I don't like being around that person. I, I feel hurt whenever they, the way they speak to me. I just, I just, it's painful. It's, I just don't enjoy it. And I'm like, Sean, that's the number one mushroom lover in the world. You have to be friends with him. You're like, he's a jerk. I want to be friends with him. So the logistic is the mushroom loving, but you don't want to hang out with this guy because you experience hurt. You experience pain uh, whenever you're uh, with him and you don't experience joy. Uh, with him. So logistics get us in the same room, but they do not connect uh, us. So the core emotion wheel is all about the core emotions. Research tells us that humans experience uh, eight core emotions. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that. You're welcome to Google it and somebody can write a paper up on it for a class next Saturday. But, uh, but basically we use the eight. We now know that there are five neural regions associated uh, with emotion. And that's true for every human. Uh, that's just how humans function. Uh, so the, there's two of the uh, regions that we divide because they present so differently externally, affectively. Uh, we divide those up. So, but we function with the, or we operate on the, the premise of the eight uh, core emotions. And whenever people get really good at processing those, now understand there are far, far, far more emotions than that, but all of the rest of them are hybrids, are combinations of the core. Uh, emotions. And so uh, you put those together and then you get this other emotion, but people don't know how to deal with that. I have a book that was written in the seventies that um, a psychologist would have somebody sit down and they would hand them a list of 142, I think it was emotions. Well, it's going to take you an hour to figure out which one is happening with you. You can't narrow that down. Uh, that's so many. It's such a long list. So when we hand people the, the list of eight, they're like, oh yeah, that's what's happening with me. And they get better and better at recognizing that. And the other thing is that whenever I hear your emotion, it touches my heart. This, again, is just part of the human condition. I know there's been lots of reprogramming, but there's not been recoding. Uh, so in other wow. words, you, you know of examples where someone was vulnerable and they were not uh, approached with safety and security. Uh, our society is experiencing a whole lot of that uh, right now. But in general, the human condition, the human experience is that if I see your vulnerability, if I see your authenticity, it draws me to you. I want to connect with you. Uh, you've heard of stories of people that have been best friends for 30 years because one of them stopped on the side of the road to help a guy change his tire uh, in the rain. And just from that, a, position in a, a person in a position of vulnerability was helped with some safety and security. Somebody stopped and helped them. And they became best friends, not because they love tires, not because they love changing tires in the rain. That's the logistics. No, it's because of the emotion. Wow, so uh, good. They were able to connect uh, through that. So the core emotion wheel is all about getting better at accessing, identifying, and verbalizing the emotion, not communicating through the emotion, but communicating uh, the emotion. Whenever I hear that Sean is experiencing pain, whenever I hear that Sean's experiencing fear, I'm just automatically drawn to him. Again, that's my coding. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not thinking, oh, Sean's being vulnerable, so I'll just try to be safe for him. No, it's automatic. Uh, and you see people do this all the time. Because again, that's what we do with babies. This baby, this 10-month-old baby cries, and we automatically cue uh, into them. I was always amazed with Phyllis. She was a, a stay-at-home mom, and I uh, was a, a, a contractor, not a good one, but 
Uh, I had to work too hard. Uh, but uh, when one of our babies would cry, Phyllis would go, oh, that's a hungry cry, or that's a tired cry, or that's a dirty diaper cry. And I'd be like, sounds like a cry to me. But Phyllis could actually hear the tone or something that she would know what was happening with that uh, cry. I never really cued in that well wow. uh, with them. And of course, she was with them a lot more than I was. But she understood their language. She understood what was happening with them. And again, we want our babies to communicate. We want them to convey what's happening because if they don't, then their needs are not met and actually could die uh, from that. So conveying this emotion is a good thing, not a bad thing. And again, we're just all older babies. Uh, we never got recoded. Uh, I know we have adult responsibilities, but uh, my goal is to get Sean to be able to turn to Michelle in his position of vulnerability, in his authenticity, and to say, babe, this is what's happening with me here. I want Michelle to be able to be present with him, uh, not lecture him, not tell him that he's wrong to experience fear. He's wrong to experience pain. Well, he's not trying to experience that. I can tell Sean that all day long. Uh, Sean, stop experiencing the emotion. Well, he's just going to stop talking to me. Uh, that's not going to change his experience. It's not going to help him. And he's just going to get him to shut up, uh, which again, frequently is our approach. We just want people to shut up and stop talking about their emotions. My goal is for you to talk about it uh, more. So what is the, let's talk about the wheel. Let's talk about the eight core emotions and then how we go about beginning to create a culture of learning how to process this so that we are healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the core emotion wheel, uh, and I'm assuming we can get that put up on the screen yeah. there. Uh, the eight core emotions, uh, we put joy in the middle because that's our dream is to live a life of joy. Uh, but there's a pleasure center in the brain. It's very dopamine, oxytocin oriented. Again, that's true for every human on the planet. We all have uh, this uh, pleasure center, and that's what we call joy. Uh, and when you get hit uh, with dopamine, when you get hit with oxytocin and several other neurotransmitters as well, uh, you just experience joy. You're not trying to experience joy. You're just experiencing uh, joy. Now, let me say this too, that emotions are not good, bad, right, or wrong. Emotions just are. A lot of times people look at the core emotion wheel and they say, why are they all negative except for one? That's not true. Uh, joy can be incredibly dangerous. Uh, cocaine addicts are cocaine addicts because of joy. Uh, they did cocaine the first time for whatever reason, and they got flooded with uh, dopamine. That was actually the reuptake was inhibited. And so they experience a tremendous amount of joy. And guess what that gets them to do? They do cocaine again and again and again and again. And now they're what we call coke addicts. So we could say that joy led to their cocaine addiction. So in that situation, I guess we would say joy is bad. Well, I don't say it's bad. I just say it is. It just is. That's what's happening. That's really and the good. emotion is not processed. So joy's in the middle. We have a fear region in the brain. Fear is the fastest activating and the fastest dissipating of the core emotions. Where you're sitting right now, if a light bulb exploded, you would jump. It's just automatic. You're not thinking about it. You don't sit there for three minutes and then jump. And if you did that, I'd be concerned that it took you three minutes to react to that light bulb exploding. But if it took you, if an hour later you're still jumping, uh, now I'm thinking that's kind of funky because that should have dissipated a long time ago. Right. That's what we call trauma. For whatever reason, you're hit, and that's what PTSD wow. is. Uh, yeah. You're just, you keep getting hit with fear about this. And my goal is to get you to process that emotion and we'll be able to release you, help release you from that. The two on the right side, shame and um, uh, guilt, fire in what we call the disgust region of the brain. Uh, we don't use the term disgust very much, but we separate those two affectively because of uh, behavior, facial expressions. Guilt looks very different 
uh, than shame. Guilt is over an action. Shame is over my essence. Uh, we say that shame is the most dangerous of the core emotions. Unprocessed shame becomes toxic. And uh, we think that most suicides come from unprocessed shame. The person just gets crushed. You'll notice the way it's spelled even, S-H-A-M-E, the little me. Uh, you feel less about yourself. And when people feel less and less and less and less about themselves, eventually they say, it doesn't matter if I exist. And then they end up sadly taking their uh, And that, own that's life. a so, huge one because like you said, it little me, I think so many people, and especially in this culture today, feel like they're just insignificant. They're comparing themselves to the next guy. They're, we live in a media-driven world where our eyesight is on the bigger, better thing or the bigger, better person. And we feel like, oh, who am I? I'm this little insignificant drop in the pond. Why do I matter? You know, and so shame is a big one. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, and then I say to people, pay attention to all the emotions. Really pay attention to shame. If someone says to you, oh, I feel some shame there, literally stop and um, just sit down with them. Uh, because if that's not processed, they're headed in a really, really bad direction. Again, all the emotions matter, but yeah. shame is so dangerous. Uh, and if it's unprocessed, it becomes uh, toxic. Uh, so really cue in uh, to that. Okay, at the top of the wheel is anger. Uh, it's blurry because there's two of them. There's a primary and a secondary emotion that we call anger. Uh, it's unique on that list in this regard. Uh, primary anger, core level anger, uh, is a great driver. Uh, it's the longest and the strongest uh, motivator. Again, it's not good, bad, right, or wrong. It just is. Uh, nothing great was ever accomplished without core level anger. Uh, when the marathon runner hits whatever, this pain level for me would be about 150 yards. But for a marathon runner, you know, they're a bunch of miles in and their body sends them a signal that says, let's head on home, get a snack, take a shower, take a nap. And the marathon runner goes, nope, I'm going to keep running. I got 12 more miles uh, to go. And the body's like, what? Are you crazy? We sent you the message. There's pain. And uh, it's core level anger that drives them to go past wow. uh, that pain. Interesting. Uh, but secondary anger is what happens uh, second. Uh, and again, it's not necessarily connected to core level anger. But if Sean and I are going to lunch with a group of guys, I show up for uh, to lunch. I walk up to the table and Sean looks up and goes, You're, you wore that jacket to lunch today? Uh, I might show him, hopefully I'm a little beyond this, but I might show him anger. And I might say, well, well who made you the fashion police? And look at you. What the heck are you wearing? Some kind of leftover shirt from Goodwill or something? I don't know where you got that thing. So I'm responding in anger, but the anger was actually second. What happened first is I felt hurt. I felt some pain uh, by what he said, and I maybe felt some shame as well. I felt embarrassed in front of our friends. Uh, if I'm a good connection coder, I would wow. just say that to him. I'd say, oh, dude, that, that felt kind of hurtful. Uh, and I felt a little bit of shame when you said that. Wow. And we would connect through that emotion. If I show him secondary uh, anger, uh, we're not going to connect. As far as I know, secondary anger never connects. Uh, people. I think it always uh, pushes them apart. So, yeah. But anyway, then the three on the left are, are what we call uh, the pain region of the brain. Uh, we now know from research that the brain does not distinguish physical pain from emotional pain. That is a stunning revelation a number of years ago whenever this became clear. So whenever I feel hurt by Phyllis and I say to her, uh, well, that was painful, uh, that's what's happening. And if she were to look at me and look over, she'd see that my arm started bleeding. There's a, like a cut on my arm and I started bleeding. Well, that's not really true, uh, but that's what my brain is recognizing. Uh, it'd kind of be cool if it was true because Phyllis would look over at me and she would see my vulnerability and she would look over and go, oh my gosh, babe, well, what happened to your arm? And I said, well, I felt kind of hurt by what you said. And we would connect 
uh, through that. But again, my body doesn't know that, but my brain knows that. And if I'm able to convey it to my partner, then she can be present with me and hear my pain. Now, just so stop there for a second. I love that. Yeah. Like, just camp there for a second before you continue on the wheel. That you always use an illustration when talking often where you talk about if I stab you in the leg and you're bleeding and you say, ow, I'm not going to come at you and say, why are you saying, ow? I mean, you're bleeding. And how research shows that the brain can't differentiate between physical and emotional pain. Can you can you go there for a little bit while we're on yeah. that specific one? Yeah, and if we could get that, uh, just as fellow humans, that when I feel hurt by Phyllis, I'm not trying to feel hurt. And again, she can say to me, stop feeling hurt. That doesn't change anything for me. I didn't start feeling hurt. I'm not trying to feel hurt, so I can't stop feeling hurt. Again, just as you say, you get stabbed in the, the leg with an ice pick, uh, and I say to you, well, stop feeling that. That's not an option. You didn't start feeling it. You're not trying to feel it. You just feel it. Uh, and again, if I yell at you enough, you'll just stop telling me about it. You'll go talk wow. to somebody who cares about you, which is what most relationships do. Uh, wow. They shut down the emotion, and they realize that, oh, that person's not safe for me. And if I said to you, stop bleeding, uh, you know, you've got this ice pick in your leg, and I want you to stop bleeding. Well, you didn't, you're not trying to bleed. <laughs> That's not something you can just stop uh, doing. And the brain is not recognizing the difference uh, if Sean feels hurt uh, by Michelle. And I'm not even blaming Michelle. I'm not saying Michelle's a bad person. For whatever reason, we'll call it a stepping on the foot. You know, she walked by, she accidentally stepped on Sean's foot. He's barefooted, and he feels pain. Well, I'm not blaming Michelle for that. That was an accident. It just happened. I'm not pathologizing Michelle. I'm not blaming Sean. This is just what happened in their interaction. Uh, and that's a big thing, too, is we don't pathologize people or their behavior. Uh, can we do things intentionally from a bad heart? Well, sure, we can. But in general, I'm just going to assume that the person is just functioning and for whatever reason, the other felt pain uh, in that. So the three uh, on the right we're talking about, hurt is a sharp stabbing pain. It really lights up the brain scan like fireworks display, big high peaks. Uh, sadness doesn't have the high peaks. It's a little bit lower level, but it's thicker. And then loneliness is that dull aching pain. You've had a headache for a couple of days. Uh, there's no big peaks in it, but it's very thick and it's still, uh, it functions in the pain region. And because it's chronic, uh, it becomes a really intense uh, pain. The Happiness Institute out of uh, Denmark, and again, psychology is a soft science. We can't prove or disprove anything with human behavior. But the, psych the uh, Happiness Institute in Denmark said that living in loneliness is more damaging to the human experience than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Wow. That blows your mind. Wow. Now, I'm not trying to sell cigarettes here, but if you have the choice of living in deep connection or smoking cigarettes or, or not smoking cigarettes, uh, I've confused myself here, but you get the idea. Yeah. It's actually better for you to smoke cigarettes than it is to live in disconnection. That's stunning. That's just, wow. and, and just And just to clarify something, you could be lonely and be in a room full of people. You could have, you know, amazing or even, I don't know if they're amazing relationships, but lots of relationships and feel this constant state of loneliness. Can you talk about what that means? As I, I know we haven't gone to guilt yet, but talk about what, loneliness means when it comes to just what you're talking about when you mention loneliness. Right. Yeah. And we tend to think culturally that activity is connection and it's not. People can be incredibly active. They can be very, very involved with other people and be flooded with loneliness the whole time. Uh, I've certainly experienced that. 
Uh, I'm a fairly gregarious person. Uh, some people call that annoying, but uh, I'm very active. I'm always active in the room uh, whenever I'm at a party, uh, but I might be experiencing loneliness the whole time. So loneliness is a question of vulnerability, authenticity. Am I connecting with the person? I can be very, very active and very, very disconnected uh, at the same time. Again, we've really confused that as a culture. And we look at people and we go, oh my gosh, that person is so popular. You know, he's always involved with other people. You know, he, he's never uh, lonely. No, some of those people are the loneliest people you'll ever meet. Well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like why, why let's say high profile people get addicted because they just feel like the platform is their only, it's their adrenaline rush. It's their only form of connection, but it's not real connection. It's a kind of a facade of a connection and internally they just feel lonely and that's why they go to, and it's on all fronts. I mean, everybody experiences a level of this, but some, like you say this, and I still want to continue the wheel here, but you say this often that everybody experiences one common core emotion consistently. There's one that kind of is like always there. It seems like I know you've said that before. Yeah, yeah. For most people, that that's the case. Again, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet, right. so there's a bit of variation. But uh, yeah, typically most of us have a go-to, uh, and I don't even want to say go-to as an active. It's just what happens uh, for us. And as a side note, with this, I sit with a lot of pastors, uh, and pastors struggle with this probably as much or more than anybody uh, because we've set up this culture where they're not supposed to be authentic, and we think they're being authentic. Right. Uh, but we've set up a scenario where they are not authentic. And I sit with a lot of pastors where our very first session together, they say, I have to make sure that we're under confidentiality here because if my congregation ever found out my struggles, I would be fired on Monday. And so they have this sad, sad dichotomy where, because then as the conversation continues at some point, they'll say, one of the things I struggle with is getting my people to be authentic, getting my people to be open and real uh, with each other. Well, your people are just following your example. They're great disciples. They're doing an excellent job of imitating you, of emulating your behavior. And again, it's not from a bad heart. These pastors are not doing this on purpose. It's just they don't know how to do it because the system is set up so that if they're authentic, if they convey their struggles, they, they could get fired on Monday. Well, that's a pretty scary place uh, to be. But then they model this bad example of inauthenticity. Their people uh, duplicate that model. And now we have this incredibly inauthentic, uh, church, wow. this incredibly so inauthentic true. group of people. And it's just a cycle. It keeps going on and on and on and repeating, uh, itself. So, but let me finish with the, the, uh, loneliness on the wheel. Just understand the, the danger of that. And you think about what we've done as a culture to get rid of tobacco usage, uh, taxes, and of course, so many messages. I was a kid whenever those messages really started getting out there and it began being propagated. Uh, if you go to certain places in uh, Central America and you go to a convenience store, the packs of cigarettes, not on the side, but on the face say, this will kill you. <laughs> That's a bad marketing campaign. Uh, in Europe, you'll uh, see packs of cigarettes that have uh, pictures of, of damaged lungs, uh, you know, babies that have been harmed by secondary uh, smoke. And people are buying those cigarettes. So but we have really been intense as a culture to get people to stop this. I would love for, and I'm 100% for that. Again, I'm not trying to sell cigarettes. But I would love for us to get that intense about disconnection, get that intense about loneliness, uh, to say, okay, we cannot let our people be lonely. Let's find out what's happening with them. And that's a big thrust of the wheel is to get people out. Uh, to get pe- invite people into themselves and into their own experience and let people share that 
uh, with them. And I don't know that I've ever sat with anybody that does the core motion well together and don't learn new things about the other, whether it's their partner, whether 100%. it's their kids, or whether it's their neighbors. And to find out that, wait, what? That, that, that brings fear to you? Whoa, I had no idea. There was uh, emotions know, so, that I felt that I didn't even know I was feeling for a long time until I had the conversation with you. And I'm like, that's what I've been feeling this whole time. That's what's always in my head. And I didn't even know it was in my head until somebody gave me the tool to like unveil it, to expose it. Yeah. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just think of it as an illness that, you know, pick something, you know, you, you stepped on uh, a nail and you pulled the nail out and it hurt like crazy. But what you didn't realize is that you got tetanus from, from this metal thing you're like no no i pulled the nail out it's okay but that's going to grow in your body wow yeah I'm not a medical doctor i don't know what i was going to happen that's with the illustration tetanus, but it's going to be bad uh but you didn't even know you had it and so now this is going through your bloodstream your your flesh whatever i, I again i don't know how that works uh but just because you didn't know it was there doesn't mean it's not going to bring damage uh, to you and that's true with so many diseases uh, with cancers uh you know when a doctor tells you you have cancer he's wrong you've had cancer for years and years and years uh, probably every human on the planet has cancer. Cancer is simply a misreplicated cell that duplicates itself again and again and again. So you've had cancer. I have cancer. You have cancer. The body just deals with it. When our immune system gets broken down, uh, most of the time because of unprocessed emotion, then the cancer gets a foothold and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's whenever we finally recognize it. And the doctor goes, oh, you have uh, cancer. Uh, but again, you've had it for a long time. It's just the body was handling it. Uh, so well, we just want to make sure that people are processing the emotion. And that's, again, part of the purpose of the wheel is so you start recognizing it. Uh, Phyllis and I have been so thrilled in our uh, adventure together as we've recognized things that happen uh, for us. My stuff was more obvious just because I'm, I'm that unhealthy, so it's easy to see. <laughs> Phyllis is very, very functional, just societally, uh, in business. Everybody looks at her and is like, whoa, she is on point. Well, yeah, but she's just a human. And as we have discovered some of her fears that we had no idea. And I remember when we first started talking about this many years ago, Phyllis would go, what? I'm not afraid of anything. Well, that's true. She's a very powerful person. She's not afraid of anything, but we're just talking brain chemistry. We're just talking what happens in the brain and she gets hit with fear. Wow. And when we depathologize that and we stop yelling at her and saying, stop feeling fear, stop it, stop it. Well, no, I just want to hear what happens for her. And now we realize that, oh, this girl gets hit with fear a lot. Okay, I just want to make safe space for her. Just the last couple of years, we started recognizing some of her guilt that hits her. She had no idea. Uh, and it's been fascinating to watch this intriguing person I get to live with when she realizes that, oh, that's guilt. Wow, no wonder I acted funky with you. No wonder I wasn't uh, authentic. I wasn't vulnerable. I wasn't close with you because I was getting flooded with guilt. And now she's able to recognize that and just convey it. Uh, and again, I've been very well trained by the Connection Codes just to be present uh, with her. And I can quote her Bible verses all day long. Uh, you know, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You shouldn't feel any guilt. Well, she's not trying to feel guilt. Uh, and that, that scripture is true. I'm not questioning that. There is no condemnation. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't experience the emotion uh, of guilt. And me telling her to stop it does not change it. Yeah, for, for sure. So the, the issue is, is you, ex you can't stop the birds from flying over your head but you can stop them from staying landed on your head or taking a dump on your head, or at least by cleaning it off because these motions come and they're just, you said they just are whether they're good or bad. They just are. 
but you can you can lean into not letting them govern your life and follow you all the time and by processing it. So I think we dealt with joy at the center. We dealt with loneliness, fear, anger. Did we do sadness? Uh, well, I mentioned it. Uh, just yeah, the, the, sadness, the, shame. Yeah, that, that's one of the pains. And again, this is just brain chemistry. This is what fires in the brain. And uh, sadness fires in the pain uh, region of the brain. So if I'm feeling sad, and we redefine sadness a little bit, not sadness as in depression, uh, but just whatever's happening in the moment. I have a task to get done. Phyllis is phenomenal at task. I am not. Uh, Phyllis gets 29 hours out of every day. Uh, about the time that I'm getting up to speed, she's already <laughs> through with so much. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> I just barely showed up. Uh, now she schedules 32 hours, but she gets about 29 hours of productivity every day. <laughs> so, so many of the tasks for me bring sadness. I do our taxes every year, doing taxes. Well, that just feels sad to me. It feels heavy. It feels painful. Uh, not sad as in depression, but just sad as in, oh, well, I feel sad about having to do the taxes. I still have to do them. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, now I don't ever have to do taxes because I feel sadness. No, I still have to do them. I just process that. I convey that. And it's amazing the power that comes from that, both individually. Uh, now I've processed through the emotion that's messing with me, but also in partnership. Because now my friend, uh, whether it's Phyllis or whoever, now my friend can connect with me through that emotion. They can hear my sadness and they can just go, oh, wow, dang, yeah, I hear that. I get that. Yeah, I hate doing taxes too. It's, uh, it's really a pain. And it is literally a pain in the brain. It's just brain chemistry. And I feel pain uh, in it. And I can process that with other people. It's what we call co-regulation. Uh, we now know from research that co-regulation uses... Uh, up to 80% less energy than self-regulation, which is stunning. Wow. Now, I'm faith-based. I believe that God designed wow. us this way. We are more powerful. I mean, you think of all the scriptures that talk about relationship, that talk about uh, connection. When we're partnered, uh, I worked for a guy in uh, Boston back when I started construction in the 80s, and he always said, uh, work for one is play for two. And he would always send two of us to unload the truck, to whatever. And two people can wow. unload two trucks much faster than one person each unloading uh, a truck. Uh, and that's just, and again, he wasn't a scientist, but maybe he was. Uh, but he was brilliant. He knew that. Somehow he figured that out. Just, eh, I'm just going to send two guys to do it. And they'll cut up and laugh and have fun doing it. And they'll come back laughing from working themselves half to death. Uh, and I started in the tile industry. So we're unloading these huge boxes of tile, wearing ourselves out uh, sometimes in the summer heat. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of fun. It's hard work, but uh, it was almost fun getting to do it uh, together. Whereas if I'd been sent off on my own to do that, that would be a completely different uh, experience. One of the protocols of the connection codes is that humans are the least likely species on the planet to survive independently but we're the most likely species to not just survive, but to thrive interdependently. This is how we are hardwired. This is how we are set up. Again, faith-based revolutionary. This is how humans function. If you look at humans, humans do not stand a chance on this planet. We are the dumbest, slowest species around. What is a one-year-old human capable of? Nothing. Those of you who have little children know this. Yep. They just suck up resources. Uh, what about a two-year-old human, a three-year-old, four-year-old, five? 
I mean, how does a human have to be before they have any chance of survival? I mean, in any culture, in any setting, they're going to have to be at least five or six, seven, eight to have any chance uh, of survival. There's no species on the planet close to us uh, as far as that slow, slow development. Uh, in our workshops, we do a, uh, a slide of several one-year-olds. And I always ask, who are you picking in a race? So a one-year-old tiger, a one-year-old horse, a one-year-old deer, a one-year-old human. Who are you picking in a race? Who are you picking in a fight? Who are you picking for survival? The human doesn't stand a chance. Uh, these other species are going, what is wrong with those people? They're just weird. They're just dense. Look at their two-year-olds, completely dependent on their parents. Our two-year-olds are already parents themselves. Uh, so the other species think that we're ridiculous. I don't know that from firsthand interviews, but that's my impression. <laughs> that they, they just look at us and think we're ridiculous. Uh, and they're correct. But when we're in tandem ship, it works. Talking about the wheel, and we're talking about our premise for today's convo is how do we revive the connection in our marriage, in our friendships, in our leadership relationships, those that we're managing or uh, just neighbors, whatever, whoever we're talking to on a day-to-day. Um, so in this now, we have this wheel, which is the sort of the, the core emotion wheel, which really is, it seems as though is like the, uh, the, the core foundation of how we learn to connect better and create healthier connections. So now take us a little bit on a journey quickly here. How, we, how do we now take that and apply it on, on an everyday? I know you always say, go on Amazon and buy a big box of ooze. Let's talk about that for a second, because if I'm in a conversation with you and I'm saying, you know what, I feel, I feel fear because, you know, at any po- point right now, this Wi-Fi connection will just stop and everything will pause and we'll lose this whole thing. That's kind of what we're talking about is learning to process this emotion. Now, I know there's like one levels of fear and there's 10 level, 10 being the highest, one being the lowest. But the purpose of the wheel is to learn to address and become aware. In the beginning, you know, you always recommend go through the wheel, you know, go through all the different emotions. Even if you have to think back two, three, four days, learn to get used to the rhythm of processing so that eventually it's just normal. I know Michelle and I were recently, just a little bit of a testimony for you, we were recently in uh, our, our, our garage, this was on the weekend. Michelle and I don't always, uh, let's just say, do well in an environment where we're working on some sort of like laborious activity, you know, one gets impatient, one, usually it's me, or stressed out about something, something's not working, and it doesn't usually go well all the time. But when we were in the garage, we were working on something together, in the moment, I actually just I just said it. I didn't go through. I didn't say, let's stop and do the wheel. I just said, I feel fear right now that wow. X, Y, Z is going to happen. And she stopped. And it was like, she just kind oh. of, she kind of coming out. And then she processed what she was feeling. And it was like, we finished it. And it was free. Where normally, we wouldn't process that emotion. And it would just be like, what you call wolf. Like wolf attack. Like wolf attack. Wolf attack. Anger. Annoy- irritation. Impatience. And, you know, and I think that that it's just, it's an amazing thing. So let's talk about now how we actually do it. Yeah. Well, so I have to ask you, how long did that take you and Michelle to do? 30 seconds. We just changed the world. Yeah. Because you think about it, situations like that for Phyllis and me 30 years ago would have taken a day and a half. Yeah. And you think about the multiplier of that 30 seconds versus a day and a half. I don't know what that math is on that, but it's a big number. 
we just changed your life. We just changed the world for Sean and Michelle. And if we can multiply that and do it over and over again, all over the place, we'll change the world. Uh, and you think about how much more productive you and Sean, you and uh, Michelle were the rest of the day because you're not disconnected. If the two of you went at each other, uh, uh, and let me just say this too, because it's important. Uh, we say a lot with the connection because there's an upside and a downside to everything. Uh, Sean and Michelle are very dynamic people. And everybody looks at them as like, oh my word, they're just a power couple. They're just so awesome. They're wonderful. They're talented. They're gifted, blah, blah, blah. And they are. That's the upside. It looks really cool. The downside is, whew, you put these two in a room together and they're disconnected. We got some nastiness on our hands. <laughs> uh, that's the downside. Uh, I, always, I always tell people that dumber people are easier to work with. Intelligent people are paying the neck. Uh, because their brains work too fast. They're coming up with all this stuff. Uh, and now we have to deal with that. The upside is, well, they're very intelligent. The downside is, ooh, yeah, but they think too much. So anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> people can get that. Truth. That, that this couple worked through this in 30 seconds uh, versus an hour versus a day versus a week. That is stunning. And Phyllis and I processed through virtually everything. I always hate to speak in absolutes, but ver almost everything in less than 30 seconds. Again, that blows my mind. I didn't know that was a thing. I marvel at it. And to this day, I mean, Phyllis and I have been doing this a long time. To this day, Phyllis and I look at each other and we're just like, wait, that, like, that was it? That, that, that took like 24 seconds because we remember the trauma. We remember the pain of 30 years ago when a little something like that would take us days uh, to work through. And now we look at each other and we're just like, wait, what? That isn't there more? No, there's not because we're at the core. We're conveying at the core. Uh, so back to the core motion wheel. Our goal, now the core motion wheel experience takes four minutes. We stress this all the time. It takes four minutes. The reason that's so important is because we want people to do it every day. If it takes 10 minutes, you're probably not going to do it tomorrow. If it takes 20 minutes, we're done here. <laughs> so if we can keep it at four minutes, uh, it helps people to go, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. It takes four minutes. I'll do it uh, again tomorrow. Uh, it's at the end of the day. It's like, oh, I'm kind of tired. Well, whatever. It takes four minutes. And we always say that you brush your teeth every day. You do the core motion wheel every day. Uh, I shared that with a couple once, and uh, the, the girl goes, you brush your teeth every day? I was like, well, that's another discussion <laughs> for another time. But anyway, the point is, uh, this is just a brief, very brief exercise. There are people all over the world that have been doing this every day for years. Uh, this is just part of their lifestyle. Uh, there's, there's certain things you just do every day, hopefully, including brushing your teeth. And uh, you just do the core motion every day because we're trying to retrain your brain. Again, we say retraining because you did this well when you were 10 months old. So we're retraining you to get back uh, to that. And that's the other reason that we do it in four minutes is to train you to be fast at this. Uh, most of us live pretty busy lives. You don't have 20 minutes to sit down and figure out what you're experiencing emotionally. I want you to be able to walk in the room literally and go, oh, what, what just happened? Oh, babe, I felt kind of hurt earlier by what you said. I want you to be able to do it in real time uh, in the moment. Uh, we don't have time to get away and have kumbaya moments uh, every day. Uh, so I want you to get really good at this. And now talking about the ooh, it's what we call puzzle pieces. We're working a puzzle with the connection codes. Uh, one of the big puzzles is what we call the ooh. The ooh is just something audible. We say there's two or three dozen versions of the ooh, but it's just something audible while you're being present with the other person. Uh, so just like, and Sean, I love it that you shared that uh, a minute ago. You know, Sean says that he feels fear 
uh, about the internet, I can fuss at him and tell him not to feel fear. And here's the problem with me doing that. Number one, I'm telling him he's wrong to feel fear and he's stupid. So I did not make this better. <laughs> I made it worse. And we may do that out of a good heart. I'm like, oh, brother, no, don't feel fear. Well, Sean's not trying to feel fear. He just feels fear and I can fuss at him about it or I can just hear him go, oh, well, yeah. Now, I don't want him to be crushed by fear. I don't want him to be drowning in fear for an hour, a day, a week, a month. Uh, but I can just be present with him in the moment. So my goal is for him to process uh, this emotions. Emotions serve a purpose. They get our attention. They tell us to, hey, pay attention here. There's something that matters. Uh, now, emotions are not our dictators. They're not our God. Uh, they're our consultant. They're our guides that just give us a, a message. And we always want to be figuring out what the message is. For example, in this situation, for Sean to go, oh, I'm feeling some fear about the internet working. I better make sure that I paid the internet bill. I better make sure that I have the internet set up correctly. And I better make sure that I've got somebody like Eduardo who has a clue about this stuff. That's <laughs> yes. Amen. So Eduardo comes in, he fixes everything. And then he makes Sean and me look good, but we're really clueless. I have a guy named Nathan who handles all this stuff and he tells it to me as he's doing it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he could he's speaking Greek. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> but anyway, but fear gets us to pay attention. It awakens us to the risk. It awakens us uh, to the danger. So we train people just to be able to ooh uh, the other, just to be able to hear the other. Now, your emotion, uh, your emotion may not make any sense to me. It may not. I'm, you know, you're terrified of spiders. I'm not. I don't really care that much. Uh, it just doesn't hit me that way. Now, I have fear in plenty of other areas. I don't have fear of spiders, but you being different than me, your experience being different than mine does not make you wrong. That's just what happens uh, for you in that situation. Uh, I get hit with so much shame when you say these raving things uh, about me. That just feels weird to me. Uh, it just becomes overwhelming. Well, I'm not trying to feel shame. I just do. And you can tell me not to, and you can tell me to stop it. And I'll just stop talking to you. I won't be friends with you. <laughs> I'll go talk to somebody who cares about me, who can be present with me, and who can ooh me and just be safe and go, oh, wow. Because some people would hear these positive things about themselves and would just get flooded with joy. They'd love it. They'd be like, oh, wow, that feels so good. And the thing about the ooh that I like, the thing about the ooh is that the ooh really, in essence, is not really a, a response as a rebuttal. It's more of a response of a listening heart. Like what ooh feels to me is like, Ooh, my response is not giving you your the the way to fix your emotion. My response is simply, I'm listening. It's kind of like what it says in James 1.19. You know, it says, my dearest brothers and sisters, take this to heart. Be quick to listen, but slow to speak. We're so quick to speak when you process or I process an emotion that then it's almost like what you said in the beginning, what we said in the beginning about it's like bringing the court case to the judge, the invisible judge, and saying, there's, there's no reason, Sean, why you should be afraid the Wi-Fi is going to break down. I mean, you're plugged into the Ethernet. Like, there's no way. There's, you, just, you have the best Internet out there. There's no reason why you should fear that. It's like you're quick to speak, quick to bring the reason why I shouldn't feel that. And then what you say all the time is that you lose the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would be correct if I said those things to you. I would be informationally correct. Uh, I would be absolutely wrong relationally. I always think about Jesus. I used to do a sermon called The Dumbest Thing Jesus Ever Did. Jesus <laughs> shows up at Lazarus's death, and he's with Mary and Martha, and he's riding, riding a, a white horse. He's the Calvary. He's coming in to save the day, you know, throwing confetti, blowing trumpet. No, he's not. 
he gets there and he sits with his sisters and he weeps. What a dumb thing to do, Jesus. You knew what was coming. You had already told them what was coming. You had predicted what was coming. Well, Jesus might be smarter than me because Jesus just sat with them. Wow. And again, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The, the Greek word there, wept, is not he shed a tear. Uh, he snotted himself. He was just wow. overwhelmed with the, the sorrow, the pain, the sadness of it. And he sat with them. And the scripture doesn't say how long. We don't know if it was 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. We don't know. But he was present with them. And again, our tendency in that setting would be like, Jesus, come on, show some faith here. Let's go, you know, walk in power. That is power. Uh, he's just being present uh, with him. And I would say that most of us in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, I am overwhelmed with sadness to the point of death, if Jesus could have ever been suicidal, this is the moment. And many of us would have stood there with him and said, you need to to, to get over that. You need to focus on God. You need to be more like Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> uh, and, and we would have told him to stop it. Uh, no, this is, this is the Messiah. And again, he knows what's going to happen. It doesn't matter. He's just a human who is experiencing what he's experiencing. And great. He's processing that. There's a um, proverb that says, um, singing a joyful song to a sorrowful heart is like yanking someone's clothes off of them on a cold winter's day. So I'm up in Canada where I understand it snows a lot. Uh, you know, Sean and I are out, uh, you know, uh, building a snowman, whatever, and it's ridiculous, like 14 degrees out or something. That would be Fahrenheit, not Celsius. Uh, and all of a sudden, I somehow managed to just rip all of Sean's clothes off of him. He could die. Uh, he could, I mean, his, he's in danger here. Uh, and just a few minutes ago, we were having fun together, building a snowman. And now all of a sudden his life is threatened. We do this all the time. We faith-based people do it, I think worse than secular people. And we do it from a good heart. We try to cheer people up. Somebody says, oh, I feel so much sadness today. And we're like, what? No, God loves you. I love you. Everything's great. Look at how blessed you are. You have a great wife. You have great kids. Everything's awesome. And we just uh, so true. close off of them on a cold winter's day. Not from a bad heart. I'm not pathologizing person doing it but it makes it worse uh not better and i again i believe we do it from a good intention we're genuinely trying to help the person but what far far more would help them is exactly what jesus did just sit with them uh just weep with them just ooh them just be present with them hear their experience hear what's happening uh with them will it make sense to you i don't know it might not you may look at it and go what i don't how, how come how come that happens for them? I don't know. That's just what happens for them. They are flooded with this emotion right this minute. So let's just be present with them. Let's don't yank their clothes off of them uh, on a cold winter's day and threaten their life. Uh, because again, all that happens there is the person gets the message. Don't talk to Glenn next time. Go talk to somebody who will be safe for you. Glenn's going to give you a ton of advice and just flood you with content, logistics, information uh, from a good heart, but it doesn't work. So what uh, would you say? This is really good because what would you say to somebody? So that's really amazing. What you just said is like mind-blowing. That verse about Jesus wept, very powerful. So he sits with somebody that he has a relationship with, feels their pain, is connecting, like kind of like he's doing the connection code right there by just 
ooing in a sense by weeping, by being present in the moment. Now, what would you say to the person asking the question now when it's flipped? Because that would be like one example of Jesus ooing in a sense, right? Now, if you flip it and the confession of the emotion is against the individual. So for example, if I'm married and now Michelle's not weeping with me because, you know, one of my family members dies and she feels my pain. I'm actually saying, hey, I feel uh, anger towards you for doing X, Y, Z. This is where we have the challenge, right? It's like, it's a lot easier to ooze somebody when it's about somebody else. So what would you say to the person? Give us some like tools, like how, help us understand how we go about this. It would have helped if you had married a cyborg. Uh, because the cyborg is not going to be affected by your emotion. But you messed that up, Sean. You didn't. You married a remarkable woman named Michelle. Uh, a cyborg wouldn't be affected. Uh, you know, a Vulcan or uh, a mannequin. Uh, and that's the trick is that Michelle's a real human too. And she has her experiences. She has her emotions. This is why we do the core emotion wheel endlessly. To tra- well, Part of the retraining is to train the other in that situation to ooh. So one of the things we say with the core motion wheel is, I don't care if it's accurate. I literally don't care if Sean says uh, to Michelle, uh, you know, I've felt some fear last week whenever uh, you decided to burn our house down. Uh, Well, Michelle never did that. Uh, The ooh is not agreeing. The ooh is just being present. I literally want Michelle to go, oh, wow. Mm, Okay, (laughs) That's her only role. The ooh is not her agreeing with you. The ooh is her recognizing that. Yeah, I could see that that would produce some fear. And not even apologizing. That's what I love about that. Not, not even Absolutely. about an apology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, that's a well, huge one. Right. Well, and that's a deep one. Um, but one of the things we do with the connection codes is we try to get people to quit apologizing. Uh, apologies don't connect people. They can occasionally, but very, very rarely. Now, my positioning is apologies are free. Throw one in there, use it, whatever. I don't care but it doesn't really connect. And frequently apologies are used as a defense mechanism. You know, so Sean says to me, Hey dude, I felt really hurt by what you said. And I go, Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Then if Sean brings it up, cause he doesn't really feel completely heard by me. Uh, I'm like, dude, I apologize like seven times. What do you want from me? Blood? I mean, what, what am wow. I supposed to do here? We haven't connected uh, at all, but if I can ooh you, if I can go, Oh, Whoa, wow. So what, what, what happened with the hurt? And you tell me, and again, I'm just doing it. I'm going, Oh man, dang that. I, mm, yeah, uh, I get that. I feel some guilt that I was a part of that, that I brought pain uh, to you. I haven't apologized to you yet, but we'll connect uh, through that. So again, I don't care if people apologize, except that it doesn't really connect them. It doesn't really help them like they think that it's going to do. And I've sat with countless couples where literally one of them has been apologizing to the other for 11 years about something that happened 11 years ago. And it's just as raw, just as disconnecting as it was 11 years ago when it first uh, happened. So the apology itself does not really accomplish anything. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, I open the refrigerator door and I bump Phyllis with it. You know, I go, oh, sorry, babe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about relational uh, things. And Phyllis and I haven't apologized to each other in years. We just don't uh, because we don't need to. We just process the emotion of it. And I do say to her, oh, wow, I feel a bunch of guilt that I did that. I really missed that uh, with you. That's another one of our uh, puzzle piece phrases is I missed it. Uh, And I say to her, dang, I missed that. Wow, I really missed that. Uh, I can explain it, defend it, argue it, you know, justify it, rationalize it, et cetera, et cetera. And that won't connect us. 
But if I'm able to say to her, oh man, I really missed that. I just missed it. Uh, and I did, uh, not because I'm a bad person. I just missed it. This was, this particular thing was valuable to her and I missed it, but there was value in it uh, for her. And she can hear that. And, uh, you know, for me to be able to say, oh, I feel some guilt because I, uh, I missed that. Oh, I hope I can, I hope I can adjust that next time and do it better uh, next time. Uh, Cause I really missed that with you and you're valuable to me. You know, you know, you're important to me and I want to make sure I get that next time. That was an incredibly connecting conversation. And again, probably took 30 to 45 seconds, uh, not an hour of debating and arguing and you know, you know, wrestling it uh, through. Uh, it's really remarkable how connecting it can be. So that's why we do the core motion well endlessly to get people retrained uh, in their brains to uh, be able to do this. Because again, at birth, when we're infants, we do this really well on the conveying side, and the other uh, just automatically responds to us. You, you'll watch a, somebody with a, a baby, with an infant, you want, especially a mom, you know, the baby cries, and the mom's just totally present with them, and ooing like crazy, like, oh, sweetheart, and they're just right there it's with true. them. And they're not explaining to this 10-month-old that they haven't let them starve to death yet, so there's no yep. reason to panic about being hungry. Well, that's just absurd. This baby is coded to convey hunger. Okay, great. How many years did it take you from the point you started to get dive into this concept for it to become a normal way of living? Because I know for us, it's been a year and a half since we've been walking with you. And there's still, I'm, we're still on a journey of getting used to because it's not, it's, we've been so programmed over the last, since, I mean, you talk about the programming we were or coded as a baby, but we've been uncoded in a sense or unprogrammed or deprogrammed or whatever, reprogrammed yeah. over the last however many years, many decades. And some people are in their like 60s, 70s and have never even, they're still, they still can't talk about certain things because there's so much pain and hurt and they don't even know how. I know for me, it's still a conscious Oh, I gotta. I have to like bring myself to a place. And so, how long did it take you to get where just normal? I mean, was it like instant for Phyllis and you, or was it easier for you and harder for Phyllis? Like until it became normal way of living, processing your emotions. Right. Well, I mean, complicated question and complicated answer. Um, number one, we're denser than most, so I, I'm hesitant to answer the question exactly because I don't want to discourage people. <laughs> we're a little denser than most. Uh, and we didn't have a whole lot of help uh, along the way. We had some, but not a ton. Uh, so I hate to even use us as an example um, because I've watched couples turn these things around very, very quickly. Uh, that's just as a side note, that's part of my positioning as far as marriage therapy. Uh, most marriage therapy I view as uh, they're me meandering through the forest, hoping to find something to eat. Uh, and I am one of those marriage therapists, so I can talk about us. Uh, that is kind of typically our approach, our model, that we're just kind of wandering around talking about stuff. Now, the connection codes are very directional. Uh, I don't like the word aggressive, but they are. They're aggressive. Uh, they're, they're very intentional and focused because I want to see a difference in our first session. I do not want this to drag on for six months uh, for one reason, because who can afford that? Who has the time and the resources, just the dollars? to go to the therapist for six months. Some people do, but the vast majority of the population does not. So again, we're not a great example of that because we're a little slower than uh, most. Uh, but uh, I would say, I mean, it's been the last 10 years or so 
uh, of our marriage that uh, we've gone from spectacular to spectacular, uh, which again, people don't, that don't know me are like, what an arrogant pig. Uh, I do not say this as a boast. I say this as a testimony to God's wisdom, uh, a testimony to God's grace, uh, and certainly a testimony to Phyllis as far as just her kindness in bearing with me and walking uh, with me, uh, that she's able to just be uh, in it uh, with me for a very long time. She had the right to exit a long time ago. Um, I don't know if you'll have to edit this part out, but one of the things I say to her now, uh, I say, I'm so thankful you're as dumb as you are, because if you're any smarter, you would have left me a long time ago. And she just rolls her eyes and says, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, Phyllis is not dumb at all. Uh, but it does intrigue me that she stayed with me because there was so much pain every day. I'm not talking about one out of six days there was pain. It was continual pain day after week, after month, after year, and how that girl stayed in it because she was bewildered so much of the time as far as what was happening with her partner and therefore with us. She didn't know uh, what was happening. So we can get traction very, very quickly uh, with this. The connection codes are very focused so that uh, and very directive. I don't. I want you to always know what to do next. Uh, it's not my goal just to meander through the forest and talk about random things. We, we do that in every session. Uh, we really push people to say, okay, what are we going to do differently this week? What's going to shift this week? And it's very active and intentional, uh, not just a, well, be sweet to each other, you know, uh, yeah. live in joy, live in kindness. Uh, well, I'm all for that, but that doesn't really help them. Uh, any yeah and I just want to say I just want to say too um, you know I, I kind of liken it not to compare it in, a, in the same way but the good news of the gospel is too good to be true it's so good he finished the work he paid the price it's too good to be true I, I, I want to say this I believe it your relationship with Phyllis from all the stories testimony is like that to me it's like too good to be true it's so good it's like Everyone has said that that didn't exist to me. Everyone said to me that the relationship that Dr. Glenn and Phyllis have doesn't exist. But when I met you and I saw and I heard the story, I'm like, wow, it actually does exist. It was one of the things that stood out the most to Michelle and I. It's like, this is too good to be true. It's like, this actually exists and I know that we're on a road towards that. And our goal is to get there. Our goal is to see your example and say, okay, it's like our, our new golden standard. Because, and I, I think that I'm just so thankful. Uh, I'm so thankful for the model. And for those of you that are watching, you're like, you know, he's talking like he's got this perfect relationship. He has an incredible relationship. It's absolutely, it, it is what he says it is, but it didn't come without its challenges, its trials, its trauma, its shaking and they paid a price. You paid a price. And I can't wait because your book, from what I understand, it's going to come out this year in 2020 called The Connection Codes, where it's going to elaborate and go a little deeper. You know, we're talking about today, revive the connection. And I wonder as we close, Dr. Glenn, if you could just pray for all those that are watching, for all those that will watch this later, that whether it's, uh, you know, a dating relationship, whether it's friendships, whether it's team relationships, leader to team member relationships, and or marriages, if you would just pray. I mean, so much has happened during the quarantine season that we're coming out of now. Things are changing, but a lot of marriages have been disrupted. A lot of relationships have been disrupted, and there's disconnection. Maybe there's been connection, but there's also been 
disconnection. This applies even to our kids and to parental relationships. And I wonder if you could just pray that we would have a revived connection in this next season, a restored connection as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I do want to mention that. I hate to end on a down note, but uh, there are some cultures that have reported an increase of over 50% uh, reported domestic violence uh, during the quarantine. That's heartbreaking uh, because people don't know how to be together. They don't know how to. So now they're forced to be together all the time and they don't know how to do it. Uh, and that's really uh, intense. And again, that's a big part of our drive. Our big part of our passion is uh, I want people, I don't mean this the way it sounds, but I want people to look forward to being quarantined. <laughs> I want people to be like, oh, and that's been Phyllis is my experience. There have been all uh, challenges as well. But it's like, oh my goodness, we get to be together like all the time. This is awesome. Uh, let's extend the quarantine. Again, I don't mean it quite that way, but we're thinking, let's do this for three more weeks. This is like uh, just so much joy, so much fun. So yeah, let me uh, pray. Uh, for those. Holy God, I pray for all of us that we are able to revive connection, certainly connection uh, with you, God, because you're so beautiful. You're so holy. You're so valuable. Uh, we need desperately uh, your wisdom, uh, your grace, uh, your kindness. And I pray that we're diligent in seeking uh, that. Uh, God, I pray that uh, we're able to convey to a lot of people it amazes me as the connection codes are spreading and to get to talk to people who I've never met uh, before. And they're whatever, 5, 10, 15, 20 layers deep that they were referred by somebody who was referred by somebody, uh, that this is organic, uh, that we're able to convey because there's such a desperate need just based on the human condition. We need connection. We need connection with you, God, but we need connection with each other. We were designed that way, I believe, by your brilliant wisdom uh, that this is how humans operate. This is how humans function. We are born into tandemship. We don't birth our babies and just leave them on their own. Uh, it is so self-evident uh, that we are designed uh, this way. But God, I pray that people are able to hear this message uh, I'm sure that there's something that Sean and I said that was uh, inaccurate that we said or presented poorly, uh, but I pray that people are able to see past that to uh, the heart uh, of the message and are able to glean uh, goodness uh, from this. Uh, we have so much excitement, uh, so much passion, certainly because we get to experiencing, just getting to see Sean and Michelle and the thrill that they uh, are getting to live uh, and then getting to live it myself. Uh, I marvel every day. And I believe, God, that it's a reflection of your wisdom. It's not just because Glenn is smart. It's not just because Glenn is lucky. Uh, we have been so diligent in pursuing uh, your wisdom, your truth, that surely Almighty God would not have created this thing called marriage just as a bad joke. Uh, surely there is goodness uh, in it. Surely there is beauty uh, in it. And we absolutely believe that. And I really pray that we're able to uh, pursue that. Uh, again, connection with you and connection with each other, which is the essence of Jesus's message. The two commandments, love the Lord, love each other. There we go. We nailed it. That is the essence of life. Thank you for grace whenever we miss it. Uh, thank you for grace whenever we really stumble uh, and fall and that every day is a new day that we're able to start over and say, okay, today we're going to win. Uh, and at the end of each day, we go, oh, wow, I missed it on that and I missed it on that. But tomorrow, I'll give it another shot. Uh, and it's because of grace that we get to do that. And we're so thankful for that. Thank you for Jesus and the cross and all that that means for us, for redemption 
uh, for resurrection power. And I pray that we're all walking in that uh, today. If this podcast has been an investment into your life and or impacted you in any way, we are incredibly thankful. We would love for you to join us in being able to continue bringing leadership content like this every month. Of course, it does not come without a cost, and our heart is to continue bringing you more improved quality and content. If you would like to partner with us with a one-time financial gift or to sign up as a monthly partner, you can do so at kingdomculture.ca. Thank you for listening to the Supernatural Leadership Podcast.